Welcome, welcome to um, another uh, special Zazen Kai uh, here at uh, Tree Leaf. Uh, today I have the pleasure of uh, reading uh, someone who we feel we know very well in the Sangha because we've been reading this book, What is Zen, uh, each week. We're up to uh, starting chapter four this week. And um, I just finished uh, a couple of her other books. This was another one. This one is just perfect for me because I just turned, uh, you know, had a birthday a couple of days ago. Uh, this is Getting Old, which I recommend to everyone. It's just uh, a sad and happy and funny uh, Zen thoughts on aging with humor and dignity. And if you want a book that's just fun, this is one of the classics of Zen. That This was an excuse for me to reread re re it. I haven't read it in 10 years. It is Tofu Roshi which is a, basically a, a send-up of every Zen book you've ever read. Really good. And I have a question, a mystery that has for 10 years. Is that the back of Reb Anderson's head? No, good guess, but it's the back of, of um, Bob Paulson's head. He was a, a member of Berkeley Zen Center who had the most perfectly shaped head I knew, so I asked him to model. Well, you've never seen mine, but without further ado, uh, let me uh, introduce uh, Susan Moon, who is our author uh, and activist and uh, Zen teacher and very proudly a lay Zen teacher. You're one of the active uh, folks in the Lay Zen Teachers Association. True. Uh, trying to uh, strike a special place for lay Zen teachers, as I told uh, Susan here. Okay. Yeah, yeah, very cool. As I told Susan here, we're trying to bridge the gap between lay and priest. I'm a, a priest with two kids uh, in the house, uh, an eight-year-old and a 15-year-old, so I'm a priest dad. And uh, the other theme uh, today is also that the tree leaf was started for with people with uh, various uh, age or disability issues. We actually have a couple here. We got one member. I'm not going to point at anybody. We got one member with vertigo so bad right now that she said, if you notice someone falling over in the middle of Zazen, please excuse the person. We have another person who's here in spirit because he's a priest in training who cannot get out of bed. And right now he's in such a condition he barely can raise his head. When he, he feels better, he comes back to training with us. And uh, Shokai, who's right there, and can I give a wave, Shokai? Uh, let me just tell you, this guy, uh, one thing after another, and uh, he always uh, keeps uh, uh, you know, a stiff upper lip about it. And the rest of us are all falling apart, too. So with that in mind, uh, I would like to turn things over to uh, Susan and just let you say hello. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to do this. It's a wonderful opportunity for me, and I look forward to talking with you and being invited to speak about and talk about aging and disability, uh, which we all share. We're all getting older, however old we are, and there, we all have something we can't do very well. So, now, anyway. Now, you said you've been... Uh you started with Mel Weitzman, who does not get any older. He just keeps... No, going. actually, with the exception of Mel, we're all getting older. 
And you were, you were telling me that, you're, you, of course, you wrote the book with Norman Fisher, and there, that he actually doesn't have a place of practice. It's a floating zendo. It's kind of a floating zendo. He doesn't have his own established Dharma center physically, which he likes. He doesn't want all the infrastructure and staff and expense and paid people taking care of it and all of that. So he teaches all over the place. And do you lead a group as well in the Bay Area? I don't lead a separate group. I often um, lead the Everyday Zen group, Norman's group, when he's away, and I and I visit other sanghas and teach there. But I, and I do some classes at home in my house. But I don't have a sangha, a separate sangha, as such. Now you you were also you were uh, I guess the the president of the. Um, I'm going to say Engaged Buddhist Society, but that's not the name. Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Buddhist Peace Fellowship. I wasn't. I wasn't the president. Um, I was the editor of our magazine, Turning Wheel. And uh, Alan Sanaki was the director. But um, yeah, I worked with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship for years. Well, with all that's going on in the world, I think we're going to have a couple of questions and, yes. and look for a, a shoulder to cry on with you uh, uh, sometime today. And uh, I guess uh, without, I'm going to turn things over to you in about 25 minutes, but if we could, we're just going to all sit together for about 25 minutes and uh, just to make yourself comfortable and uh, we'll all sit where we are, okay? Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Shingen, you want to uh, handle the timing today? Are you set up? Okay. Okay, well, without further ado, I'd like to turn things over to Moon Sensei and I uh, hope she'll uh, uh, cure all our aches and pains or at least uh, help us feel a little better. Thank you for being here again. Thank you, Jindo. So, I was asked to talk about practicing with aging and disability. How's the sound and everything? Is it all good? Okay. Um, so, Aging is something I have a lot of experience with. I'm 75. Uh, I wrote that book about aging of some years ago. And since that time, it turns out that the process has continued. And I'm even older than I was before when I thought I was old. So uh, now I look back and think, wow, I thought I was old then, but little did I know. So, um, and a lot of things in life get easier the longer you do them they get easier but aging tends not to be one of those things it turns out the longer you do it the older you get and it can get even harder um and even buddha admitted that it was hard he listed it as one of the three forms of suffering that he was shocked to see when he left the palace old age sickness and death so i think it's important not to pretend that it's all wonderful and it's all good and don't complain about it and people shouldn't be so negative about it. I mean, it's, it's a lot, it can be wonderful too. And there are many wonderful things about aging, but I also think that it's really valuable to acknowledge the difficulty and the losses and the suffering that are possible 
as part of aging. And uh, so in our society, oh, it's particularly in what we call the West, and I don't know how it is in Japan or all the different places where you all are, but certainly in the States, it's um, to be old, it's old, bad to be old and it's good to be young, basically. And there's a tendency for older people to want to do a kind of bluffing uh, and not really appear to be old. Um, and I want to kind of take the risk of being transparent about what it's like for me to be old. And transparency and openness is kind of a risk because one risks being uh, condescended to, being dismissed, being considered um, just a little old, a cute little old lady or something like that, not being taken seriously. <clears throat> but I think it's important um, not to complain and wail and whine, but to just be able to say, this is how it is. And so I've been uh, really thinking about this. And, I, and as I'm talking to you, I'm going to be speaking personally from my own experience. And this is what I tend to do. I, I uh, use my own life as content for, for teaching, not because my life is any more important than anybody else's life, but just because I'm the person I know best. And so I can kind of use myself as a way to understand a little bit about what it means to be a human being. So I'll, I'll be speaking in a sort of wide-ranging and informal way, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you all, too. Um, so I, what I've come up with, a, a, I have a sort of four, four strategies for dealing with aging. And all of this is framed by my Buddhist practice and comes to me with the help of Zen practice. But um, four, four ways of, four things to bring forward with as you face aging are to observe, to adapt, to let go, and to accept. And I'll say a little bit more about each of those. Uh, and I also want to say that even if you're not old, uh, you, if you're young, um, you're still getting older. Everybody's getting older. And, and also, you probably know somebody who is old. So hopefully, talking about aging, and I'll come more to disability later, but talking about aging is something of interest to all human beings, whatever age. So anyway, in terms of observing, this is something we emphasize in Zen practice, try to see things as they are. And as Suzuki Roshi said, he called it, see, see things as it is. He spoke of things as it is. So anyway, uh, I try to see things as they are. I try to see what the situation is, just to observe it. And, um, and to say to myself, okay, this is how it is right now. This is how it is right now has become a kind of mantra for me. Um, 
so I want to say that I have noticed in recent, in the last, I would say just in the last year or so, I've really noticed some more pronounced cognitive losses. And I'm very fortunate to be in pretty good physical health. I had a double knee replacement, both knees, five years ago, and that helped me hugely. Now I can hike, I can go up and down stairs really like a flash. But, um, and I have other things, some arthritis and so on, but nothing that's really debilitating physically. But now I'm beginning to have more problems from the neck up, and uh, I'm anxious about it. Um, but I, I thought, well, I'll just try to be, to speak about it. So, uh, and there are differences of degree, and, and so there's lost memory, memory trouble, and my short-term memory is definitely getting worse. Uh, my, uh, my vocabulary is getting smaller and smaller. I think all of, a lot of us are familiar with losing proper nouns, um, but now I'm starting to lose improper nouns, common nouns. And um, the other day, I couldn't remember the word for ladle, like soup ladle. And I was talking to my sister and kind of going like this, and she furnished the word for me. And then I also couldn't remember the word for skylight, which really startled me. I was talking to a contractor who was going to put a skylight into the attic, and I was pointing to the roof and saying, well, how soon do you think the, um, the uh, and he said, skylight, and I nodded. So um, I thought, wow, this is really intense. Well, I got, it worked out. I communicated what I needed to communicate. So um, this is what's happening. This is how it is right now. Um, another, another thing that I'm noticing that is discombobulating for me is confusion about time and place and appointments. I easily make mistakes about when, I, when my appointment is or I go to the wrong place at the wrong time on the wrong day or something like that. Um, I get it right more often than I get it wrong, but I, I do get mixed up um, more than I ever did. So, okay, this is what's happening. So I think it's appropriate to grieve the losses that we have. And these losses that I'm speaking about are not causing me huge amounts of grief, but some losses really can cause people grief, especially in terms of disability. But um, we have to allow ourselves to say, yeah, this, this isn't what I wanted. I, I can, I'm sad about this. I'm grieving this. And then it becomes possible to maybe go on. Uh, but to make space, don't turn away from it. Don't turn away from how things are. So then uh, the next one is adapt. And it's so often the case that we can find a workaround or as it says in the Lojong teachings, you can um, make uh, turn turn all difficulties into the path, or um, make make uh, turn your obstacles into opportunities, and that's um, often possible. There's ways to uh, open up some new space because of what you can't do anymore. So. Uh, for example, I think I'm a better listener now. Sometimes when I'm in a conversation, I think of a story to tell 
and then I realized I can't really remember one of the or a couple of important words in the story like what was the name of the book or you know when you're trying to talk about a book to another old person and you find yourself saying well you know that book I can't remember the name of it and I, I can't remember who wrote it um, and I can't really I sort of remember what it's about but it was a really good book <laughs> well anyway sometimes I don't tell the story that I'm thinking of because I think well I just I'm not thinking of the words so I listen instead and that's good. I, I can listen just as well as ever, and I can understand. My passive vocabulary is excellent. I can understand all the words I used to understand. I just can't call them up so well. So, and I'm a writer, so this is kind of worrisome for a writer, but then I think, okay, I can write more simply. And uh, I teach writing workshops, and I've often given the um, exercise to people for years to write using words of only one syllable, which is a fantastic exercise because the English language, especially in English, English has such great short words and, and short words have a lot of power and they're very simple and straightforward, more like a child's expression. Anyway, uh, so I can write more simply. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit. I, I use a lot of long words in my writing and talking, but I think that effort to simplify is really a positive thing. And the same with my life of appointments and doing and activities and networking. It's time for me to simplify my life and not have so many appointments, and then I won't have so much to try to keep track of. So I'm working on that. It's, it's a challenge because I have such a appetite for going around all over the place and uh, trying I'm still learning to that I can't be in more than one place at one time but it's a good chance to work on that some more so then uh, let go that's the next one and let go we know letting go is Zen practice or Buddhist practice is all about letting go letting go of self-clinging and so that's that's a really good one and um, you you don't have to be the active one anymore all the time you don't have to always be the doer as you get older you can be the beer and you can offer um, yourself in less active ways this isn't to say just uh, hold up in a corner and don't participate no not that but um, let yourself not be so active if that's what's happening. It sounds as though your, your Sangha Jindo has, has people who are really practicing in these different ways, and that's wonderful. Um, and also, uh, the letting go can include the wonderful, wonderful idea of you don't have to do what isn't important to you. Don't do what doesn't matter anymore. Just do what really matters. Take up what you really care about. And that's a blessing. And then the, I, the last one of accept, um, that's kind of brings us back to the beginning of this is how it is right now, to now come back to that. Okay, this is how it is right now. And uh, let it be a kind of gift to be able to accept. Um, I have a friend with... Uh, who's undergoing very intense 
an aggressive chemotherapy right now for advanced cancer, and she's um, she's exhausted all the time, and she can't eat very well, and she needs help. Um, she, she has people coming to stay with her overnight, and I've been helping her out and visiting with her. And she her spirit is amazing, and she she says I, I was talking to her and saying, well, how how are you doing with this? And she says, well, I just say to myself, this is how it is right now. That's where I got this mantra was from her. This is how it is right now, she says. And uh, that's also about being in the present moment. And if you can really be in the present moment, you're not anticipating all the terrible things that you think might be about to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. And we know that practicing not knowing is is part of our practice not to know what's going to happen so this is how it is right now right here and um, also I heard, was hearing a talk by Ramdas recently uh, who was saying that one of the important things that people this applies to people with disability as well as aging that um, one of the gifts you can give is to model being dependent and receiving the help of others. And we have a culture that puts so much stress on independence, independence. I, I've just got to be independent no matter what. Uh, we're not independent anyway, even in the best of health. There's no way that any of us is independent. We're not, we're, as we know, we're completely connected. So um, to model the idea of receiving help from others is great for other people who are you know watching us get older or need help and thinking oh that would be so horrible and if we can do this with grace and with dignity we're helping others to not be so afraid of maybe needing some help themselves and to receive help is a gift to the one who's giving it sometimes so um, of course there's a point at which you don't want to be totally dependent, but that's that's another question that I'm not really taking up right now. Just the idea of being able to receive the help and even ask for the help and then receive it of others. That's a very caring thing to do, and it's a very human thing to do, and it's really precious. Um, and I also think that with acceptance can come a kind of dignity that one of the things I try to do as I think about my own aging is to continue to practice dignity and to remember that I'm, I'm Buddha too and I can be upright even if my back is bent and my back isn't bent yet, but you, you to try and remember, oh yes, I'm here, I'm, I'm, I'm myself, I'm a human being, I'm I'm fully present with some grace and some dignity. And uh, I think of my granddaughters. I have three young granddaughters, and I also think about how I'm modeling aging for them, and I don't want them to look at their old grandmother moping around and whining about how wretched it is to be old. Um, I want them to see that I'm alive and capable of joy and capable of being present fully with them as I am. And I think that's helpful to them. They might get old too. So uh, we're, 
we're always modeling by how we act and and people learn from us by watching us and and as Ramdas says your life is your message and what you do speaks or how you behave and how you respond is always a message and a teaching whether you're a teacher or not that you are teaching others by the way you live your life and you're sharing with others by the way you live your life so your life doesn't belong to you alone it belongs to all the people around you who care about you and all the people around you who interact with you um, so uh, another another thing is that um, about acceptance is that we we can always remember that um, the possibility of, of saying this is how it is right now, we always have that. We're not going to lose that. And, and Norman says, Norman Fisher says, you know, the problem so often, the problem is that we think there shouldn't be a problem. So if we accept, yes, that being human involves problems, if you want to call them problems, everything isn't perfect. It's a process. It's ongoing. If we didn't have any problems, we'd be dead. That's when we get to not have any problems. So what would we do all day if we didn't have any problems? Um, we maybe would be in the realm of the celestial beings. So that's the problem with the celestial beings realm. They don't do anything and they don't get to get out of the field of nirvana because they're not doing a darn thing. They're just sitting around not having any problems all the time. So we're lucky to be human. Um, and I want to... Uh, pause and I'm going to read you a very short excerpt from my book, This is Getting Old, which is kind of speaks to this uh, idea of, of acceptance and of being, not doing all the time. It's called This Fast Life. Every morning I vow to be grateful for the precious gift of human birth. It's a big gift, and it, it includes a lot of stuff I never particularly wanted for my birthday. Some of the things in the package I wish I could exchange for a different size or color. But I want to find out what it means to be a human being. My curiosity remains intense, even as I get older. So I say thanks for the whole thing. It's all of a piece. When my granddaughter was just over two, I visited her and her parents in Texas. She doesn't have a lot of ideas yet about how things are supposed to be or what's supposed to happen next. She's glad to be alive. I was babysitting for her one afternoon, and part of my job was to get her up from her nap. I was reading in the next room, and I knew when she woke up because I heard her chatting away to her bear. I lifted her and her bear out of her crib, and we went downstairs. While I fixed her a snack of crackers and cheese, she danced around a purple ball that was lying in the middle of the living room, singing an old nursery rhyme that she had learned in her preschool. Ring around the rosies, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And then she sat down on the floor, kerplunk, laughing. She was fully present, fully joyful. 
As a matter of fact, the song she was singing is a very old chant about the plague, and the last line about the ashes refers to our mortality, but she wasn't worrying about that. In his poetic essay, The Genjo Koan, Master Dogen wrote, a fish swims in the ocean, and no matter how far it swims, there is no end to the water. A bird flies in the sky, and no matter how far it flies, there is no end to the air. When I get unhappy about something in my life, I sometimes think, wait, no, this isn't the right life. It isn't what I want. I need to find the edge of this life and leap over the fence into a different life. But that's not how it works. My life is vast. I can't find the edge of it, just like a fish in the ocean or a bird in the sky. There's no getting out of this life, this ocean, this sky, except by dying. If I try to change the ocean, I'll never find my way or my place. There's no place else to be but here in the big mystery of it. It happened that only a few days after visiting my granddaughter, I visited an old friend in his 80s who lives in an assisted living facility. He's a Catholic priest and monk who has dedicated his life to solitude and spiritual study. He's well-read in multiple spiritual traditions, including Zen, and he is an important mentor to me. He's not well physically, he's weak, on oxygen, and confined to a wheelchair, but his mind is fine. He told me, if I've died before, I don't remember it, but I recognize what's happening. That's where I'm going. Years ago, he had a coffin built for himself by a carpenter he knows. It stands upright in his little apartment, like a roommate, a reminder, keeping him company. He sits at his table and looks out the window at a pear tree and watches its leaves turn and fall and bud again. He watches the seasons, the whole universe in that pear tree. He reads, he prays, he receives an occasional visitor. Like my granddaughter, he is completely present in his life. Like Dogen's fish, he is swimming around in his ocean and there is no end to the water, even in this tiny apartment. Moments after I entered his room, he was talking to me about Isaac of Nineveh, the 8th century Syrian hermit whose writings he had been reading when I came in. Like my granddaughter, he too is singing his version of Ring Around the Rosies, dancing until he falls down and turns to ashes. In between that toddler and that old man is a span of over 80 years, and most of us in those intervening decades tangle ourselves up in knots over the things we don't have that we want and the things we have that we don't want. We run around trying to fix things in our personal lives and in the life of the planet. It's a good thing we do because it's actually our responsibility to fix things. We need to fix the plumbing, for example. The toddler and the old monk aren't fixing the plumbing. They need us to take care of them, and we need them, too, to remind us that everything is already taken care of. Not long ago, I attended a meditation retreat beside the ocean, and while I was sitting, I listened to the surf. The surf is the sound of the ocean breathing. It's never still. Sometimes the sea is so loud and crashing that I crave a little silence, and so I listen for the silence between the waves, but just as one wave recedes from the shore, flowing back down the sand into the ocean, getting quieter and quieter, 
Just before it gets silent, the next wave always seems to break. The ocean never stops breathing because it's alive. The sound of the ocean is a sound of time passing, the sound of one moment giving way to the next. Each wave, each moment is a gate that I pass through into the next moment. And even if I'm not sitting by the ocean, one wave of my life is still followed immediately by the next with no completely quiet place in between. I love the vow, Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. I keep giving myself away to the next moment and the next moment receives me. I just have to keep stepping through. So that's that. Um, so I wanna say something specifically about disability, which I have less experience of myself, although disability and aging overlap a lot. Um, and uh, it's hard to draw a sharp line between these things. Um, but as I say, we all experience different kinds of disabilities. And it really is true that each person has, has some things they're able to do very well um, naturally and some things they're not able to do very well. And some things maybe that they're not able to do at all. But some of us also are suffering from disabilities that are extreme and actually cause us to limit the way we live our lives or change the way we live our lives. And I want to talk about a friend of mine named Clay, who I just saw um, recently. Um, he's a man, he lives in Colorado now, he's 55, and I knew him um, years ago at the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. He worked with me there. And he was um, a very fit, uh, tall, handsome, he's 6'5", he's uh, very, was very athletic. And in his early 30s, he became disabled by um, some degenerative disc problems in his back and his neck. And he uh, became, he, he was in constant pain and he has been in constant chronic pains for almost 25 years now. Um, he, he has a wife, he has three children who are college age now, uh, but he basically has had to give up working and he, um, he can't sit, he can't sit in a chair for more than five minutes. He can't stand for more than, just stand up for more than two minutes or something. Um, he practices, he meditates lying down with an ice pack and he um, also can be physically active. He still looks, he, he came into the house to visit me. He, he came from Colorado and uh, he wanted to talk to me because he's writing a memoir about his life and his experience practicing with chronic pain and he wanted some advice as a writer for me as a writer and editor and we talked about that but I said I want some help from him too about him telling me how, how how because I told him I was about to be giving this talk and talking with you all and I wondered how he um, how his practice helped him so um, I want to quote some things he said. He, uh, 
I should also say he's seen all kinds of doctors. He's worked with doctors. He's worked with pain doctors. He's worked with pain clinics. He takes medication. He's had surgery. It's not that he isn't trying everything that he can possibly try. Um, but he, and then a, a, some years ago, he had a, a, a sort of an increase in his difficulty when some new discs in his neck were herniated. And uh, he had to give up a project that he was doing that was a kind of work project. Anyway, it was a very hard time for him. And he said, he talked in talking about that time and about his life, he said, I would meditate at home while lying down and the waves of grief and despair would just flow through me and wash through me. The tears would run down my cheeks and collect in my ears so that when I sat up, they would spill out onto my shirt. I couldn't believe it. I had to laugh about that. But that kind of grief is a little bit scary because I've never had it quite so strong before. Still, there was a part of me that welcomed it and realized that it was appropriate. It was going to be healing in some way because what I was losing was really big. When you have that kind of loss, you go through some powerful states of grief. All of those negative thoughts of failure, worthlessness, hopelessness, I just let them all come. And somehow I was washed and cleaned and it was self-nourishment. These tears were really strong for a couple of months every day. And then what was interesting was that after a while, I found myself crying not so much about my own state as about other things like news reports that were sad or beautiful trees and flowers, just things that really touched my heart. I'm 55 years old and my condition has gradually worsened with age. However, I find that my ability to find joy and satisfaction in my life has actually increased despite the worsening of my condition. He told me that um, there was a turning point that came for him when some years ago he was consulting yet another doctor who had a lot of experience with chronic pain patients and tried some different medications and he is dependent on medication but it's not curing him and the doctor said you know there's nothing more we can do for you medicine doesn't seem to be able to do anything more for you at this point it's your job now to take care of yourself it's your job in this life to look out for yourself and look out for this pain and to live your life and make the contribution that you make by being who you are and, and so he said that that news was devastating to him in the moment that he first heard it that there was no cure and it was never going to get better um and maybe that's not even true but anyway that the doctor couldn't do anything more and then he said he felt this tremendous relief and he said oh okay i don't have to keep fighting this is who i am this is where i am this is my life and i'm going to take care of my life as best i can and the people in it as well and he gives a lot and he leads a sitting group and he um, works for a foundation that helps people with mental illness and so on. So he, but he understands that take attending to his own situation is his job in a sense. And that, that was quite inspiring to hear him saying that. Um, and he said, I asked him, well, what are the other things that helped you? And he said, well, um, 
being, just being present with the pain, being present. Also, he said something I mentioned before. He said also, admit that I, I, I allowed myself to admit, I hate this, I hate this, why is this happening to me? He allowed himself to have those feelings and to let them come up, like that weeping he talks about. He allowed the grief, he made space for the grief, and he acknowledged it so that he could move on. And then he said he kind of befriended it in a sense. He befriended the pain because it's part of him. Not that he likes it, but it's there. Um, and and again, to, he, he tries to be present in the present moment and he doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. So he's present now. Um, there's, and to, to have the sense of everything is here that we need in this moment. Uh, I was recently studying Hakuin. I'm a Soto Zen practitioner, so I wasn't that familiar with the teachings of Hakuin. It's fascinating. And I was teaching um, in my saga about some of Hakuin's teachings, and we were studying um, the song of the song of Zazen, which is probably very familiar to some of you Rinzai practitioners or whatever. Anyway, um, one of the lines in, in the Song of Zazen is, truly, is anything missing now? And I find that such a wonderful um, question and to, to stop, and we can just stop right this minute here. Truly, is anything missing now? Truly, is anything missing now? So I want to say um, one more thing before I end about um, love, which is that as I've been thinking about what I'm losing or what I might lose, I've, I've come to realize that uh, as long as I can still love, I'm okay. I'm not going to lose the ability to love. I don't think that's can be taken from me. And in fact, I think aging or disability or some of the sufferings we experience, these can help us to become more loving. So, uh, and as I become more loving, my own pain grows less of whatever it might be, you know, that it's, it's by definition, loving is kind of letting go of self-clinging. And uh, so I really think that's, um, that's the way to go. And years ago, before I thought of myself as old at all, I was middle-aged maybe, there was a Dharma brother at Berkeley Zen Center who was old, who gave a talk about getting old. And, and now everybody's talking about getting old. But that was the first time I ever heard somebody talk about getting old as a practice subject. And he was great, and he had been a very active person, a contractor and um, a family man. And he said uh, he found it a surprising relief to get old and to let go. He was able to be unexpectedly generous, that he, his ego got much smaller. And he had a grandson, he said, who he just loved spending time with his grandson, who was about two, and being fully present with his grandson and doing whatever his grandson wanted. He didn't have anything he was holding on to that he needed to protect. 
He didn't need to worry about building his house, building his career. Um, his, his marriage was good. He didn't need to worry about that. He was just able to be present and be generous in a way that he hadn't experienced before. He kind of found him, he found this generosity in himself and was very happy about that. And, and so this is another way of talking about becoming an elder, which is important that we, as we become older, we can become elders and, and that our world needs elders. We need older people who are modeling some kind of acceptance and wisdom and, and hope. And uh, I haven't spoken about hope, but I, it's not for us to just give up and resign ourselves and say, I mean, sometimes there's a temptation to say things are going so badly in this world that I'm really glad that I'm going to be dead before such and such happens. Well, but what about the people who aren't going to be dead? You know, we have to think about them. So uh, I think we need to feel our connection across the generations of leaves, like the ancestors who came before, there are Buddha ancestors, and there are helpers and our guides, and those who are coming after us, they are also our helpers in the sense that we can be taught by thinking about them and caring for them, and also we are going to be their ancestors. And there's a, a Buddhist teaching a Buddhist sutra called the Ehe Kosu Hatsugonmon. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but um, about having faith in the ancestors. And it's a kind of very traditional and yet very beautiful writing in which um, there's a line that says, Buddhas and ancestors of old were as we. We in the future shall be Buddhas and ancestors. So, I really appreciate that sense of turning and that um, we will become, and maybe we already are, that we're all here together as Buddhas and ancestors, those who haven't come yet and those who already came. Um, and we can dedicate our love to, to the generations before and the generations after. And we can again say truly is anything missing now so i would like to hear some comments and thoughts from you all before i open things for um questions uh, i have a one i would like to ask you because uh every week we get this could be a whole talk by itself just briefly we get someone who um, comes and says they're struggling with depression and mm. is getting old. And I think the, you had an article in Shambhala, I think, mm -hmm. about your period of depression. I had depression when I was in my 20s. And you actually said uh, something very honest. You said at a while you thought the practice was bad for you, and but you stuck with it. I just Could you speak just briefly about practicing with depression? Yeah, um, yeah, that that's a rough one, and uh, I did feel. I mean, it was. I think my depression was pretty extreme for a while there, and sitting zazen was not helpful for me because 
and and I talked to my teachers and and I said, you know, I just have all these terrible thoughts. I think my life is no good, and and I won't bore you with them all. But um, and teachers said to me, well, that's our our practice is not to turn away. Just sit still, and the the um, the painful thoughts will arise, and the painful thoughts will pass away. So I sat, and the painful thoughts arose, but they didn't seem to pass away. <laughs> and maybe I didn't have the patience, but um, for me, the, the Zazen period itself was kind of like an empty room where the demons could come and really take advantage of me in a way. And I didn't have the... Uh, I don't know. I I wasn't able to witness them without being caught by them somehow. So anyway, I I stopped actually sitting. I I fled from a session one time during that depression, and I um. But what I did do was I kept practicing in the sense of I kept reading, I kept bowing, I I chanted at home in my home altar i lit incense and i did some bows and i did some chants and i chanted the heart sutra and I, there was a part of me that had faith in the dharma i just felt yeah it's still there the dharma is still there and i'm still part of it and um that helped me a lot and and i think it was a really positive thing in an odd way that I was able to say, um, I'm not going to sit right now. And I, I, I don't have to be doctrinaire. I don't have to follow the rules. I have to take care of myself, kind of like Clay's job of he had to take care of himself and his difficulty. So I had to take care of my difficulty. And I there's some part of me knew that sitting wasn't, helping me then and I would come back to it and I did uh, come back to it so it's part of an important part of our practice is trusting ourselves I think that's really important we have to trust ourselves and Buddha said that too you know don't do something just because I told you to do it trust your own experience so practice can look different for different people at different times and maybe practice is going for a walk maybe it's not sitting at a certain point in your life other people probably have found other kinds of things that are adaptations to the practice itself that they make that helps them. So, uh, in terms of the depression, though, I would also say um, that I, I think sometimes you can't. You just I had to say, yeah, this is really rough, and and I had to feel bad. I I couldn't cure it right then. But another idea that helped me a lot was, well, the idea of impermanence in a sense. That, but I framed it more narratively as a journey. I was telling myself, well, that, this is a journey. I'm going through this dark valley or something, but um, it's a journey. I'm not staying here. So um, that helped. Okay, thank you. Uh, just thank you. Uh, where, if uh, someone uh, present has a question, please raise their hand. And folks at home, you can email uh, questions at uh, jundotreeleaf at gmail.com. That's one word, jundotreeleaf 
Uh, anyone here has a question? Oh, good, good, good. Okay, let's see. Frankie, here you go. First of all, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Good. Uh, thank you, Susan, so much for your talk. Um, there was a question I had about your book. You mentioned in your book about the transition from the cushion to the chair, which was your chapter, Leaving the Lotus. I'm at that point now where I may have to make that transition. Um, not so much creaky knees but there's no grace or dignity in me getting up and down from the cushion at all and what i found is despite everything i've read and despite teachings from our wonderful teacher jundo that inside of me there's a real resistance to this i know you said you swallowed your pride but for me, there, there are more things going on. And I was really interested in your talk when you talked about grieving. Because for me, I feel a sadness about this transition. Did you, did you have a lot of resistance to doing that? I did have resistance. I, I think the, the part about pride isn't what you're talking about, probably. I mean, we know that that's not useful. To, you, you're self-conscious, you don't want people to look at you and think, oh, she's sitting in a chair. No, that's not the point. But the point is, there's a deeper sadness about, well, sitting on the floor is a wonderful thing to do, to be grounded and to be in that kind of balanced triangle or whatever. It's a wonderful position and that's, and it's been de developed just right for meditation. So, yes, I, I did grieve that loss and I um, sitting in a chair is harder, it's a little harder to get, to feel like you're meditating at first, because you're sitting in a chair all the time, you sit in a chair, I mean in our culture, you're sitting in a chair when you eat and work and study, and I'm sitting in a chair most of the time, so what's the big deal about sitting in a chair? And when I would sit on the floor, it feels special now i'm meditating it's this is a sacred position <coughs> but i will say that um that sense that it's it's become sacred for me to meditate in a chair and i um so i i still in a way miss sitting in the floor on the floor and as a matter of fact my knees have gotten so much better that now sometimes I find I can sit on a bench, on a seiza bench with a cushion on top of it. So it's a little even higher than usual, but I can do that. Uh, I've gotten up to 20 minutes. So maybe I'll be able to do a <clears throat> full length period on the cushion, on the bench. But even if I couldn't, I would encourage you to just take up the practice of sitting in the chair if that's what you need to do. And and know that the chair is there for you. The chair is, is a wonderful gift that is there for to put your bottom on. <laughs> and, uh, and as for getting up and getting down, I mean, that's one of the hard things about the floor. But, I mean, if you can still get up and you can still get down, 
and the sitting on the floor itself works for you, then I wouldn't stop. I wouldn't worry about if it takes you a little longer than other people. That's all right. You can take longer to get up and nobody's watching to see whether you're graceful or not. So I wouldn't let that stop you from sitting on the floor. But if it's really not working for you to sit on the floor, that's another matter. Okay. Good luck. Thank you. Sakushi, I think uh, you, you had a question. Thank you, uh, Susan, for taking time to talk to us today. It's really, really excellent. I've enjoyed it. Um, I was wondering, um, something that we've talked, we talk about in, in the Sangha a fair amount, uh, you know, large sense is the difference between acceptance and um, engagement sort of in the world, um, but also in our lives. And I feel like it's a big part of, you know, what you're talking about is there is at some level an acceptance of this is how things are right now. And how do you, do you have any, I don't know, advice for finding a balance between this is how things are right now and they're perfect just as they are and I'm going to try to make them a little bit better. That's a great question. I think that's kind of the essential question in a way. I, I have that question always. And and I used to really object when I was young and an activist when I came to practice and people would say, well, just um, accept things as they are. Well, it's unacceptable the way they are. It's not acceptable. So I think um, to say um, this is how, it, how things, this is the way it is right now is um, not resignation. We can't have resignation and I think you're so right that um, we need to speak up and take part. And we want to. We also are taking a vow to save all sentient beings. So what about that? You know, there's that's the other side of it. And um, so we need to live from that vow and step forth. And if, if we're older and we can't go... Um, do as active things as we used to be able to do. I think all of us have a way, can find a way to step into the, the suffering world or to speak up or to demonstrate our, I don't mean demonstrate with a placard, although we can do that, but to demonstrate our own concern. Um, and it can be done in a quiet way. And there are many ways to, to interact with the suffering of the world and to and, and there's a feeling also now I know among, for myself and my many friends, we, it's easy to think, oh my God, it's just so bad now. What can one person do? What can I possibly do? I can't stop climate change. What can I do? So, um, you know, we can say that, but we vow to save all sentient beings. If we think we, we can't stop climate change, so why should we do anything? then we have no right to take an impossible vow. Like, I mean, to save all sentient beings is clearly impossible. So if we're willing to take that vow, the point is it's a statement of intention and we can take one step. I'm working on, on uh, the election in the fall and I'm working on some, uh, helping to run some election retreats in California. Anyway, to work on 
vote, getting out the vote and stuff like that. There's many ways to do things and it doesn't have to be that political, but I do think that people can be hopeful about participating at the same time that we say this is how it is right now and at some level we're perfect exactly as we are. I don't know if that helps at all. I, I, I have a question from someone at home that ties in uh, very much with what you, you just said. And um, I'm just going to paraphrase because it's a little long. She thanks you for your talk, Suzanne. Uh, her, na her name is Suzanne. Uh, she was an environmental activist for years and years, and everything looks like it's falling apart. Every time she puts on the television, she gets depressed. Uh, everything they work for looks like it's going the other direction. She wants to crawl into a cave. Uh she just wants to give up and it all feels like it's worthless. What was the point? That's her question. Good question. Um, I understand that feeling. I think we all do. Um, well, for one thing, I, I don't think we're obligated to read the whole newspaper, look at the news every day. I don't think that's necessary. If what I do think is, is necessary is to stay engaged but um, you know it's I know some people who are activists I have two friends I'm thinking of who are very involved one is an environmental activist and she um, she doesn't pay any attention to the news except to follow the issue that she's working on because she says she gets too depressed and it's not uh, she needs to know what she needs to know about insects. That's her issue, insect extinction. She says, this is a terrible problem, that people, and I didn't know about that. So there's another thing to worry about. But anyway, um, and another a man I know who was a donor and gave large sums of money to, to conservation and forest management and stuff, he... Um, didn't read he gave up reading the newspaper and he just worked on his own issue and he said he figured that he had a lot of friends and somebody would tell him if there was a war going on that he needed to know about just then but that he needed to focus his energy on the help that he could give so i i still feel like i want to know and bear witness in some sense to what's going on but i don't think we have to torture ourselves with that and then i i think also that um, you know, it's uh, there is all this suffering, and I, it seems like to us that it's worse now than it's ever been. I don't know, but I, I imagine all through human history, there's been the possibility of thinking, "Well, I, I, it's too big for me. I can't, I can't stop wars. So why should I try?" And that trying is part of. That's part of our bodhisattva vow. It's part of what makes us a full human being. So finding some way, it doesn't have to be big. It can be something really small, but finding a way to come out of that cave, and it takes courage. That's a good thing to do. There's a wonderful book called Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit that I recommend um, about this, and it's very short, and she's a Buddhist. Okay. Uh, I think, uh, Shingen, you had a question? Okay. Well, thank you, Susan. Lovely, lovely talk. Um, 
So actually, Sekishi kind of brought up a good point. It's almost interesting. So I just have one question, but I also have thank you for answering the question that I was about to ask. So you kind of knew what I was going to ask. But I have a lady that's in my sitting group, and she's a general doctor, like a general practitioner. And she came to me, this is a while ago, so it's actually quite interesting, but she came to me one time because she felt really burdened by the fact that a lot of kind of where I live, we have a, an aging population. So a lot of people that she deals with is she's having to deal with um, uh, people's licenses, driver's licenses and medicals. And so because maybe their eyes are not working very well or that sort of thing. So they're working whether they're going to lose their license. And she really struggles because these people are so afraid of losing their independence. And so we talk really in depth about this, um, you know, how she could help them and so forth. And I'd like to have your take on this because one of the things we came across was we feel there's a difference between accepting one's condition or one's life and embracing one's condition or one's life. Because sometimes people accept something, but they accept it with resistance. And therefore, they're shut off from their experience, where engagement, you're actually intentionally moving towards this experience in, in your life that you're facing at that moment. So I'm wondering what your kind of take is on kind of acceptance and engagement. Yeah, maybe that has something to do with what I was thinking of as the difference between resignation and acceptance, but um, we don't, the kind of acceptance that's really resignation and is passive isn't, isn't what we're looking for. We're looking for an engaged kind of acceptance. Um, yeah, when my, my mother uh, had to give up, her children kept, we kept urging her to stop driving. She was a terrible driver uh, as she got older. And she, again, she too feared the loss of independence. And she had a very bad back and she couldn't, we would say, well, you can take the bus. There's a great bus. She lived in Chicago. And, and it hurt her to walk the two blocks to the bus stop. It really hurt her back. And then we said, well, take a cab. You can afford it, which she could. And she said, well, it takes forever to the for the cab to come, which is true. It did. <coughs> but um, anyway, one day she drove into a parked car for no particular reason. I mean, she was just coming home from the dentist and she drove. She didn't aim very well and she drove into a parked car, which luckily had nobody in it and nobody was at all hurt. But both cars were dented. And she was persuaded, okay, she'd stop driving. And she was just miserable about it. And then she um, discovered she lived in a senior housing facility and she learned, which she hadn't known before, that they had some of those chairs. They're not wheelchairs, but they're those little chairs you can ride around on the sidewalk and steer them and sit on them. And, um, and she started using that and she, uh, took it, she would ride the chair to the bus stop and she could take that chair on the bus stop. And then she would go to concerts and art museums and things in downtown Chicago. And she just was so elated and proud of herself and, and she didn't even have to worry about parking and it was so great. So, I mean, everybody doesn't have that 
happiness but yes that's that um there is a big difference and maybe that your your sangha member as a doctor too you know finds ways of encouraging her patients that it's not the end of the world that there are like as i was saying adapt there's ways to adapt and to turn this problem into perhaps an opportunity for something new and different or to carpool with other people to enjoy going to events with your friends or and have that kind of connection i don't drive at night anymore any long distance um so and when i go to various zen groups in marin county i always go together with friends this is great i i, I i'm perfectly happy to drive during the day when i'm not when i can see better and i'm not going to fall asleep at the wheel but um it's been a benefit to me to not drive at night wonderful thank you very much actually another another question from home that just connects so nicely with this um it's from sid and again i'll, I'll just paraphrase um It's not me getting older and sick, though I am too, but my loved one. We have a couple of people here also with sick loved ones, um, I know. And it's not taking care, though that gets, it's so hard sometimes because the person is uh, apparently bedridden. But watching them hurts more than if it was me. What do you have to say about that? Wow, that's a really good question. And I didn't even address that in my talk, I realized. Yes, that it's a lot easier in a way to accept the loss of abilities of ourselves and the people we really love. And uh, I don't know, I guess uh, at some level it's it's still... You know, it seems heartless and unkind to accept losses of your loved ones. Um, but there's a part of it where we have to allow some, we have to have faith in the, the, our loved ones that they, they are going to find their way to being with this situation and we're going to help them all, all we can but it's not for us to remove the difficulty i mean i have grown children and and i um you know one of my sons has had some difficult patches in his life as an adult and um and it's just horrible as a parent to have a really really unhappy child and the younger your child is, the more likely you are, the, are to be the one who can fix it. If it's a baby crying from hunger, you feed it. If it's an adult, there's nothing you can do. Um, or there, you can be supportive and so on, but I can't fix it. And that's been, that's been a practice for me, to uh, a, a sort of humble practice that, okay, I, I'm not him, he's, he's not me, he has a his life and i want to offer him all the support i can but i also want to have faith and sort of communicate to him if i can but he he can he can do it he can find a way and um 
So, but but it's also just as sad. It's also just one of the sad things about being human that um, is you just cry about it um, and say, yeah, this is a big loss. From it's a big loss for my beloved that they can't get out of bed, they can't share this experience that I'm about to have or whatever. Um, and it's, you just can find your way through as best you can with love and with faith in each other, I guess. Maybe somebody else has some ideas about that one too, actually, about how to deal with that. Any, anybody uh, have something? More psychosy. Let me let me give uh, Shoka. Uh, turn. Hi, Shoka. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Good. So on on the question from Sid in your answer, I think one of the great things you said is that we can't fix it for them, and it, I think especially in our current society, it's always that way. It's you know, fix it for me, fix it for me, fix it for me. Like, give me the magical solution to this, please. Fix it for me in one little pill or whatever it is. And I think the the longer I've practiced, I've, one of the things that I find more difficult is that realization when I'm interacting with people who are in pain or difficult situations. Of, I can't do anything for them but listen and support, but I like can't actually fix it. And so I'll let you comment on that. But then for um, our member, Jindo, I think you said it was Sid. Uh, one of the things that I found helpful when I'm when I have a person in my life who I can't help and all I can do is support them is then to also go to somebody who can support me. Because a lot of times when we're supporting and giving so much to somebody else, it really grinds us down. And we need somebody else to just help help listen to us and maybe alleviate our burden a little bit and tell us exactly like you can't fix it you're doing the best you can and i'm sure that's a value to them and that might be a way to help um you know keep sid fortified to continue helping and supporting their loved one that's a great suggestion support groups for caregivers are really important for the stressful part of caregiving and the tiring part of it. And I guess those support groups can also address this emotional grief part too of well, how do you deal with the fact that of your sadness that your loved one is suffering? But also, you know, I was just thinking now of of Clay's story about the relief that he felt when the doctor told him, I can't do any more for you. It's your job. It's your job to, it's job in the sense of something sort of noble and worthwhile, not in the sense of chore, but your work. It's your work to do this. Um, that maybe we can help our loved ones believe in themselves, or, or and maybe they. But anyway, to just trust that they will find a way to do the best they can also. Okay. Anyone else? I don't want to start overstaying our welcome. Ah, 
our other wise voice of, uh, of a, million, a million different things. Hi, Shoka. Susan, I just want to say thank you for taking this time to share with us. It's been very interesting. Uh, Jindo has asked me many times to talk about uh, some of the, the trials of getting old, aging. And um, I haven't done that much because I don't think it's a big deal. It's, it's just from day to day, you go on. I, I feel very fortunate that uh, uh, I worked in a large corporation, corporation which uh, picked this one group of us, there were about 800 or maybe 1,000 people we varied, uh, and they, they chose us to, to teach us about change and how to accept change oh. and how to adapt change. And so they used us uh, as ambassadors of change. And through over the years, we were put out into, the, into other parts of the company and to take this attitude with us. Life, life is an attitude, right? It's yeah. a, what's it like? Ninety-nine uh, percent attitude, and 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 the other fifty percent is uh, <laughs> being here. Uh, I'm not sure if that's what uh, Yogi said, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, I, I I can relate to a lot of stuff you're talking about. <laughs> and um, for instance, um, yesterday I couldn't get out of bed. Uh, just. Uh, had to stay there and, and uh, recuperate from whatever it is. From sleep. So uh, there are days when you're up and there's days when you're down. There's good days, there's bad days. Yeah. Uh, rejoice in every one of them. Yeah. Rejoice when there's something to learn from, from yeah. each. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't I don't really have any questions. I, I just uh, I just want to let you know that I really really appreciated you being here. Well, thank, thank you. you. And also, thank you for the reminder that it doesn't have to be like a big tragedy that's going on. I mean, you're talk you just go from one day to the next. It's kind of like sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. Every day is a good day, even if it's a bad day. Um, just being kind of straightforward and present in your life. I'm curious, what, what, is, the, what is the kind of change that you are speaking to in your company when you go out and, and speak to people about change are you talking about changes within the company itself or changes uh, we're going back about uh, 40 years and uh, <clears throat> it started it started then um and it was changes that they wanted to make in the company but it's very I difficult see. to have yeah. people do changes <laughs> they, they they resist you know yeah. just Automatically. Yeah. People really do resist change, so it's great that you that kind of teaching about change probably has good transfer value to other all kinds of change. Able to this is probably, probably what brought me to uh, to Buddhism was that uh, when you when you go moment by moment, then then the next moment is not that big a deal. It's, yeah, uh, it's just uh, something that's happening. Yeah, and it's one of the Wait. marks of existence, impermanence. Yeah. As we start to bring it home, any anyone with a pressing question? Anything? This is your chance. Okay, everyone's quiet, so we get to slip out the door, I guess. Uh, 
Susan Moon, I'd just like to say that uh, I, I don't say this lightly. I, this was an hour that uh, I think is going to change some people. Uh, and uh, I, we've had a lot of teachers uh, come, and I don't know anyone right off who just defines the words wisdom and compassion more than uh, what we just experienced uh, this last couple hours. And um, um, this is uh, this is a treasure. I think we're going to keep around our sangha. This 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 talk. Um, uh, I think more people. I, I don't. I hope you allow me to introduce it to some other Buddhist form because other people need to see this. Well, thank you, Jindan. It's really been a privilege for me to be with you and to hear the comments from the other people in the sangha. I've so appreciated it. Thank you very much. And as I said, uh, you're still going to be part of our sangha every week because we're getting into chapter four. Oh, oh, good. And uh, don't forget Tofu Roshi. <laughs> it's hilarious. A Zen classic, Tofu Roshi. Okay. Yeah, the life and letters of Tofu Roshi. All right. I guess uh, on that, uh, I'll let everyone uh, get up. Uh, some of us are got to get up a little slowly. <laughs> <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> Take your time. And uh, just thank you all. And uh, lovely. Thank you very much, Moon Sensei. Okay. See you guys around. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.